Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of All That Jazz. I'm your host, Jasrod Singh Hullen, Member of Parliament from Calgary Forest Lawn, and we are so honored today to have my good friend and I would say world-renowned lawyer, immigration lawyer, Raj Sharma, joining us today to talk immigration and a bunch of other things that I know a lot of people are going to be really excited to hear about. Raj is a very well-known lawyer for many years, someone I could say I look up to, uh, a little bit of a, I would say, role model as well, uh, someone that is very dedicated and very passionate about helping people out. Uh, I'm not going to do an in- introduction for him because I'm going to leave that to him. Raj, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, let us know who's who's Raj. Just Raj, uh, thanks so much for having me on. This is the first time I'm in your uh, in your lair in the lion's <laughs> den. Um, so thanks for having me. And uh, in terms of background. Uh, uh, just like you, probably. Uh, my my parents came over about maybe 50 years ago, about 50 years ago. So we're second generation now and kids are now third generation. Um, I studied here, went to University of Alberta for law school, um, article with the Fed Department of Justice. After that, I started working at the Immigration Refugee Board. And really, that was how I got into immigration. Um, and in fact, my first office wasn't too far away from here. My first office was in Force Lawn. Wow. So the hood. Um, <laughs> so my first office was 52nd and close to 17th Ave, southeast. And, and you lived here uh, previously, did you not? Close uh, to this area? A little north of here. So, you know, growing up, um, my uncles had video stores. I mean, of a course. common sort of uh, <laughs> brown experience, shall we say. So my uncles had video stores. So my first job was uh, working at uh, in uh, right off uh, next to Marlboro Mall. My uncle had a video store there. So I was 13 or 14 years old and... And so I worked here. My uncles lived in Marlboro. Before that, there were Penbrook, then Marlboro, then Temple. And, you know, uh, in-laws uh, were living in Coral Springs. Now they're in Panorama. So I've always joked that immigration or immigrants in Calgary have followed a counterclockwise migration pattern. They started in the southeast, the northeast, worked their way up the northeast. They've made the jump over to Panorama. Now we're seeing some of them uh, end up in the southwest. So uh, I guess uh, in another 20 years or so, I suppose that the circle will be complete and (laughs) we'll be back into the southeast. Absolutely. I I fully agree with that. Immigration. What made you get into immigration law? I know there's a a story about your your father or your not wanting you to be a lawyer at some point, correct? No, I don't know. That's not the case. I think my dad is probably very happy that I got into law school because, you know, my brother is also a lawyer now and he's an immigration lawyer. But we kind of uh, sort of fooled around a little bit too much. So both me and my brother had very unimpressive first year GPAs. (laughs) So I think my father is very, very happy that we're both lawyers. Absolutely. We were on uh, my brother and I, he does U.S. immigration law. And we were on another radio station together. And the host asked, how is it that you know, one brother does Canadian immigration law, the other brother does U.S. immigration law. And I, and I just piped in. I was like, if we had a third brother, we'd be doing Mexican <laughs> immigration law. So no, no, I think my, my dad is probably very happy that uh, we ended up in uh, as lawyers. Uh, in terms of immigration, everyone has an immigration story. That generation has tons of immigration stories. So when my dad first came here with $290, just like a lot of other individuals, mortgaged the land, the farm, came here, and they all have uh, experiences with immigration officers and how they got immigration and 
my dad would always point out that he he came under Trudeau Senior's uh, points based immigration. So Pierre Elliott Trudeau took out that sort of subjectivity and brought in the objective point system, what we call the federal skilled worker. And so my father immigrated under that class, and he sort of all, all, he always pointed out other guys his vintage. He's like, yeah, yeah, they they got regularized under the amnesty program. Um, but yeah, we, there must be so many stories from from that generation. Absolutely, and and it must feel so good to be able to help out other immigrants that want to live that Canadian dream. That you know, our parents came here to to actualize, to see it, and to realize. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting. Uh, I'd like to also note that Raj is not just a lawyer. I mean, uh, what we call this concept of seva or selfless service I, from ever since I've known you, Raj. You you do free almost I would say just updates and consulting in a, in a way on Red FM. Uh, I've seen through uh, community initiatives where especially for our seniors, you guys give information before this whole pandemic. I know you guys would have you know community hall gatherings of seniors to give up to date information. You along with Andy, uh, another a lawyer that um, that uh, is a mutual, not a even just a friend, us, just yeah. a, a very like a brother. And so, you know, those kind of things inspired people like myself because I would see that you guys are very successful, but at the same time, that concept of seva or giving back was always put in the forefront. And I think that that um, concept is one that is not lost, especially for immigrants that come here, because there's always a sense to give back just when you're here and you're living that Canadian dream, it's to try to help others. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, certainly in, in terms of seva, it's, it's a fantastic concept from uh, from Sikhi and from the Sikh uh, faith. But uh, I wouldn't put myself up as, you know, this paragon of selfless service. Um, you know, I, I do what I can. We've done a lot of uh, teaching. A lot of it is about information. A lot of individuals are being exploited, particularly by individuals from their own community. Absolutely. And so there's a lot of exploitation, unfortunately. And we do have to step in. Obviously, as as lawyers, we do have an obligation to the profession and to the public as well. Um, but there's far greater individuals than myself in terms of selfless uh, service. Um, you know, this this is it, it is very very rewarding though, um, helping out individuals that. And again, you you see your elders in your clients, you see your parents in your clients, you see your grandmother and your clients. So it, it is very rewarding at the same time, but it can be very, very difficult and frustrating, uh, particularly the volume. But, uh, you know, it's it's been, you know, I came to, I think I came to Calgary at the right time. I think I started my practice at the right time. And, and you know, before you know it, it's been 17, 18 years uh, in this particular field. So I, I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed. That's a great way to put it. Is it is a big blessing for us to be in uh, within this community and be able to help the community at large. Um, immigration, obviously, this is something that is very near and dear to both of us. Right now, the pressing issue is the backlogs. It's the thing that everyone is talking about. We're at 1.8 million in applications that are in backlog right now. Um, where do we go from here? What what do we do? Well, one would hope that the only way we go is is up. <laughs> I, 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 like the problem is, is that common sense is not so common. So when this pandemic started, um, we were together in terms of uh, at Parliament. We 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 discussed the challenges facing IRCC. IRCC seemed to make 
movement in the right direction, which is how are we going to address this backlog? How are we going to um, address visa offices that are partially shut down? So a lot of it was, you know, for the longest time, we had wet signatures requirement. We had we had paper applications, which yeah. are just not amenable to flexibility because somebody has to go and grab a file and somebody's got to review it. And so now, again, we've moved in the right direction. We've taken, but it's, it, again, it's very difficult, which is it's almost like it's two steps forward and one step back. So we have electronic applications. We moved very well on applicants, economic class applicants from within Canada. So broadly speaking, there's two different there's two different streams for permanent residency. There's economic applicants, and then there's non-economic family class applicants. These individuals, I feel a lot of sympathy for. They're waiting for their husband, their wife, their partner, their parents. Their years, months are being lost. They're, you're waiting to see your 75, your septuagenarian father or grandfather to join you. Uh, you're losing very, very valuable time that, that you can never get back. And they have been affected particularly by, by all of this because their applications are overseas. Their applications are wet signatures. Their applications are in visa offices that are shut down. They start up again. They shut down again. Very frustrating. Very little communication from IRCC. Um, you know, we're getting, we're getting emails back from IRCC, which is our agents don't know anything more than you do. Well, that's not very helpful. In terms of the economic class applicants, sure. The individuals from within Canada, we had very positive developments. The TR2PR pathway, that's something that you championed as well, which is fantastic. Along with your help and suggestion. Right. It, it, remember one thing in terms of like, you know, <laughs> we were talking about frontline workers and they were, they, were t they, were considered low they were considered low skill workers. Well, they're considered low skill workers until you need them. Right. I always call them low wage workers. I mm -hmm. never ascribe this, the skill to it because I think it's disparaging and derogatory because a low Very skill true. truck driver is what's going to keep that supply chain moving. And, and trucks are the same people that were driving life saving supplies coast it's, to coast. It's over going the to be that so-called low skill or low wage yep. light duty cleaner that's cleaning the hospitals, that's, that's cleaning right. the long term care facilities. So I don't like the low skill I think those individuals have just as much right to move and become part of the PR family. So that was a very good development that we had the TR to PR pathway. I'm hoping that it starts again. So within Canada, good developments there. Portals have started up, electronic non-wet signature applications. But there's a lot of people that have been left out. And, and so there's the FSW, so individuals from outside Canada that have applied. Some of them are actually in Canada. No movement on those files. And again, those family class applicants, um, tens of thousands of visitors, basically in limbo, six months plus for super visa applications. So that's the mess that we find ourselves in. Yeah, you bring up some really, really great points. And, uh, you know, there was a, a, another recent article also about, um, you know, there are nurses here in this country that are ready to go, but they're just waiting for their PRs. And they're ready to get back and get into the front lines. Forget, forget the nurses that are ready to go. I had individuals working in long-term care facilities, uh, assisting our most vulnerable, facing removal and deportation. Wow. I've had to go to the federal court to, to, to challenge those decisions that say, well, that's not, that's not significant enough of a contribution. So very schizophrenic type of reaction. On the one hand, many months ago, we're, we're beating pots and pans. <laughs> 
and and we're acknowledging them as heroes That's as right. they are. Yep. And on the other hand, immigration officers don't seem to value their contribution months down the down the line. So, you know, I, I think you know Prime Minister Trudeau has a great line. He's he, there's a lot of platitudes that we we get from our prime minister, but and and I appreciate some of his strengths, but. You know, he always says better is always possible. And I'm like, that's great. Can we get some of that better now? We need to do better and we can do better. And, it's, and, and we went from beating the, and the pandemic became, we went from beating the dead horse of the pandemic to justify delays to now bringing in, you know, processing resources have been shifted to address, uh, you know, the Afghanistan refugees. And and bear in mind, Afghanistan was a, it's not like a disaster that happened, like the volcano that erupted in Tonga. Mm -hmm. This was a disaster that we saw coming for months, maybe a year ahead, and we didn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's very, very unfortunate. My, all my sympathy goes out to the individuals uh, uh, that are left in the lurch in terms of Afghanistan. Uh, and then we had an election in the, between all of that and... You know, for us as MPs, our, our offices were shut out from doing any type of inquiries for for offices like yours or, yeah. or even for constituents in that time. It, it For me, it, it, it highlighted that Canada cannot handle a crisis situation and regular processing at the same time. And that, that's a very concerning that we should be able to do both or be able to handle just in case this ever happens again, you know, hopefully it never happens again that, that these type, this type of crisis never happens anywhere to any country. But it always is good to be prepared. Um, it leads me to thinking about what is happening in IRCC? Like, why is it, why do we keep seeing the same thing over and over again? IRCC, you know, to, to some degree, IRCC is kind of like the Titanic, all right, so you've got this big ship, and the rudder was small, and there's icebergs on the horizon. <laughs> all right, so so you're 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 churning along, and by the time that signal gets to wherever it needs to get in terms of turning the ship around, it takes an incredible amount of time and effort to to move IRCC because it's of course it's a bureaucracy and it's moved up, made up of hundreds of moving parts. You have you have frontline visa officer decisions. So visa officers have to, they're tasked with competing objectives of the act, which is, number one, I have to determine, is this a genuine marriage? Absolutely. At the same time, well, this is a huge impact on a family's life. Um, is this a genuine visitor? As opposed to the objective of, like, we need to enhance, you know, Canada's tourism, accommodation, business interests as well. So there's, there's these competing interests at play very hard to to turn that around, but you know, and caught in the middle are, are ordinary individuals. That's right. Family class. This is something that you know you touched on a little bit before. It's it's always the one that's like you said. It's it's heartbreaking to hear some of these cases where people can't you know see their kids' first steps, hear their kids' first words. They're missing milestones. And on top of that, we know that, you know, sometimes when, you know, we're separating families, the hardships that it causes, even in the relationship, we've de dealt with people who uh, unfortunately divorce because of the, the whole separation. On top of that, this is also an opportunity for us with our economy that the way it is, we could have someone else come here that could be a part of the workforce. 
I know we've talked about this a little bit before about family class. What do you think? What do, what what do you suggest for our family class? I think there's a couple of basics that need to be implemented right away. Firstly, we need to have communication on a file, respectful communication that tells the individual that more than the form letters that we see That's that right. are automatically generated. So number one is we need to have communication and true understanding of where the file is at and what is necessary, what's holding it up. Number two is that where we have children, where we have clearly genuine relationships, a strong application, officers have the ability to issue a temporary resident visa or issue a temporary resident permit even to facilitate the reunification of families. So we don't see that. We see a lot of refusals instead. So we have these, again, platitudes, which is like, okay, well, an officer can consider a TRV in these circumstances. Well, the TRV is in a black hole as well. So this, mm-hmm. the black hole aspect of it that applications go in and nothing comes out. And so that lack of communication is significant for, for families. The, the inability to secure TRVs. And again, this disproportionately impacts racialized individuals and, um, and certain countries. This doesn't really impact uh, someone with a UK passport or uh, a European passport or right. a, a visa-exempt country. So there's visa-exempt countries that don't require visas to come to Canada. That's about 50. But 120, 130-plus countries require visas to enter Canada, and that's the sticking point. You know, you, you talked about uh, racialized individuals being the ones that are almost targeted. There was this very, very concerning report that came out uh, just months ago that had to do with racism with just within IRCC itself. Um, is that something that have you have you heard about that report at all? I saw it. I I didn't delve too deeply into it because you know we we've been just um, inundated and just trying to move files the files that we have in it. it there's plenty of systemic issues within IRCC. Um, I think compounding and, and compounding the issue is that we we don't have ministers of citizenship and immigration that stick around for too long. That's right. So when you become a minister, it will take you time. Of course, you're you're the critic now, so you understand how big this file is. Yep. So whether you talk about temporary residents to foreign nationals to permanent resident visas to permanent residents to citizenship, it's a big, big file. Absolutely. And so I would probably suggest that you need to leave ministers in place for a while so that they can get to learn the ropes. It's it's so true. I mean, this is a point that I think a lot of people should be understanding that yeah, the liberals I, have been in power for six years well, and we've had four different ministers, you right? Know, I used to be an officer. I used to be a hearings officer with the Immigration Refugee Board for two years. I've practiced immigration law for 15 plus, 17 plus years. I've written a book on one aspect of immigration, inadmissibility law and remedies, I still learn every day. So I can only imagine how how is it possible that an individual, a politician, is tasked with this mandate and is a, is going to be up to speed in a matter of months. It's going to take time. But does that does that lead to the point that they don't take the immigration file seriously? Or is it just to keep things, you know, is it piling things on when you have four different ministers over the last six years? Like, what, what does that symbolize? What does that say to you? I don't know. I, obviously, the it's at odds with their messaging. Immigration is very important to Canada. We know that immigration is very important to the economy. We know that immigration is very important in terms of international students to the universities, and international students are disproportionately uh, and essentially covering the cost or, or defraying That's the cost right. for our own students to go Absolutely. to university. 
Um, international students probably contribute 10 billion plus to the economy. Um, it's a very, very important file. That's so right. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I can't justify, I can't speak obviously as to why we have a revolving door, what appears to be a revolving door in terms of immigration. We had Ahmed uh, Hussain, Hussain who knew the file because he used to be an immigration lawyer. Um, then you had John McCallum. So again, right. you know, you, John McCallum and then... It was Ahmed John Hussain. McCallum first and then... Right. Then he became the ambassador to China. And so, yeah, it, it deserves, this This ministry deserves, particularly during the pandemic, a steady hand at, at that tiller. Um, I'll leave you, we'll, we'll leave that section of backlogs with, where do we start with starting to tackle these backlogs? Like, what what are your suggestions? Uh, is it the, the triage system that I've heard you talk about before? Like, what are, what other... Let's let's dig into that and say where where do we start? I don't know. I you know this this is from my perspective as an outsider. Um, my perspective as outsider again, common sense may not be that common, but why would you not prioritize spousal sponsorships? Good point. That to me that seems to be the absolute priority for uh, PR visas from outside Canada. I understand that FSW. Maybe we can't do employment verifications. Maybe uh, background uh, screening is going to be impeded uh, for FSW applicants from various parts of the world. I understand that. And, you know, it's it's important not to be unreasonable. It's important to be, it's important to criticize, but criticize with some degree of sympathy and empathy for the circumstances that officers find themselves in, visa officers find themselves in. But... Just as a starting point, I don't understand why spousal sponsorships are not prioritized. Um, sometimes there's a justification for that delay. Well, we need an interview. Well, why can't those interviews be done on the telephone? Why can't those interviews be done on Skype? On or... Zoom, like everyone else is on Zoom right now. Right. So I think the spousal sponsorship should be moved up. Absolutely. Um, I think in terms of spousal sponsorships, if a visa officer is indicating that you know we don't have this sort of capacity... Issue those visitor visas. Issue those facilitation visas. The assessment can be done after the fact. Um, so just, you know, the triage system, yes, absolutely. Let's let's move on those spousal sponsorships. On a family class uh, sponsorship, why not prioritize uh, parents or grandparents that are over 70 years of age or 75 years of age? Um, why not consider hardship? You know, again, these... But I, I hear too many sort of Justifications or excuses that don't hold water. So we have we have applicants for permanent residence that were delayed even before the pandemic. We, right. I have PR applications that are three years, yep. four years in the queue. That we can't put the blame on the pandemic for a three-year-old PR application. You know, it we're two years into this pandemic. One would think that we could have some of this stuff sorted out by now. Like you said, moving some of these interviews, it would help save time. And even for your brother, um, you know, he's doing the U.S. side of things. We're hearing about, uh, I have, you know, a couple of cases in our office where there's truck drivers. They have trucks ready to go. They have the, you know, they buy the trailers. They invest so much money to help contribute to Canada and Canada's economy. But they're slowed down by things like U.S. interviews that are being canceled or they're slowed down by just the process itself. This is two years into the pandemic. You would think that we would have we need things I, sorted out. I think we need, again, 
systemic solutions for systemic problems. But, you know, any number, I mean, we have... You know, we've got uh, Djokovic, the the tennis player from <laughs> yeah. Serbia, who understands the limited rights of foreign nationals and and the absolute discretion of of officers when you enter another country. And um, we want we want essential workers. We want truck drivers. Okay, I represent very large trucking yeah. uh, companies in Alberta and and beyond. And we're getting work permit refusals out of Abu Dhabi and other visa offices on on the most spurious of excuses. And so how, you know, we have teenagers driving long haul trucks in the US. But at the same time, you say this is important. These all these truck drivers have a lot of experience, verifiable experience. Yes. But we're getting refused on on and 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 what that happens is that an unjustified refusal means we're just going to go to the federal court. Mm-hmm. It's going to go back for redetermination. Yeah. So we need some sort of I I think additional training or policy where we have sticking points in terms of refusals we we have a we have a visa office in delhi that looks for misrepresentation um and you know what if you look for misrepresentation surprise surprise you're going to find it and you're going to see five year bans and so what does that mean that means more federal court that means more litigation that means more appeals that means the system again is is slowed down so it's it has to be it has to be a director from top down it's these what we're highlighting right now in this podcast is is we cannot highlight each sticking point but there's multiple sticking points in multiple different visa offices and cumulatively they're contributing to this backlog and so this is this is what we're faced with makes total sense um labor shortages we have in this country uh, what some consider, which I feel is a labor crisis right now in a lot of the fields. I mean, we, we deal with a lot of trucking companies, for example, that can't find people to drive. Um, how do we or what is your suggestion on filling these labor shortages and how do we get to that equilibrium where we're able to fill those gaps and help with our economy at the same time through immigration? Immigration many, many years ago, it's the minister, you know, it's basically Immigration Refugee uh, Citizenship Canada, IRCC. Before that is uh, Citizenship and Immigration Canada. Before that, it was the uh, Employment and Immigration Canada. And so what they did is they've, they've eliminated, they've, they've bifurcated these two ministries. And so they've taken out employment, let's say that's perhaps under Service Canada, but you really have a, a chasm now between immigration as a solution for labor shortages. And and part of that was for the longest time under the FSW, Federal Skilled Worker, they tried to get these sort of stem cell individuals that, okay, we're just going to grab someone that has decent education, relatively young, good language proficiency, and some sort of verifiable skilled work experience. And once they come to Canada, they'll figure things out. That doesn't quite work out the way that they plan to. So now we have specific programs. Okay, we have the provincial nominee programs. We have we have uh, employers that can access the work permit pool. Um, but again, you don't have a sort of holistic understanding of how immigration interacts with Canada's economy, both on a provincial, national, local level. Yeah. And so I would probably advocate for a greater provincial say over immigration. So, you know, we, we just have a drop in the bucket. Alberta has maybe 7,000, 8,000 provincial nominations uh, available. Um, so 
again, there's there's things that can be done, but you really need to approach it and understand it in a holistic fashion. Which and 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 no minister can can do it because that minister is in a different portfolio in in less than twenty four months. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, after a, a snap election that's uh, very costly, uh, yeah. rolls around like we saw last year. Um, we're looking at immigration levels, um, and the new levels are going to be coming out in February. Um, probably going to be increasing from the 401,000. And we've seen some of the, the challenges that came along, that came along with the backlog, that TR2PR program that we talked about. There were some implementation issues that we saw where third parties could not apply for those people. And, you know, we had we had business owners calling us saying, what are you guys doing? What is the government doing? My whole entire workforce took the day off just to apply for that program. And then the English requirement on the, on top of that jammed up the English classes. Some people didn't get in on time. So for me, it's it's always the, the announcements are great. The implementation of it is just horrible sometimes. Sure. I mean, like, you know, an individual has come to Canada. He's uh, studied here. He's got a IELTS uh, score that's, let's say, two and a half years old. And therefore, he needs to get another one. Well, why? It's not like his language score is going to drop after two and a half years in Canada or three years in Canada. So again, just small, small common sense solutions would have been great. Like, okay, we will accept an ILET score that's more than two years old. I mean, the the score is low. The TRTPR pathway, I think, was CLB5. So, yeah. I mean, what's wrong with the two and a half year old score that's CLB7? What do you see with... With the with the levels going up, which you know numbers should not be the be all end all thing in, in my eyes, anyways. It, but there needs to be some practicality to what what we're doing. Um, where do you see the these these numbers that are going to be either coming in or, or people who are going to be here? Where do you see some of the challenges these people are going to be facing once they get here? I think if. The broader picture is that Canadian experience class, individuals that are here, that have studied here, that have postgrad work permit, that are working here, or international foreign workers, should, should always have been at the front of the line. It was a serious mistake to have 25-year-old recent graduates in Canada with one-year work experience competing with FSWs, individuals from outside Canada with more education, greater work experience. That was a mistake. And so... I hope that the CEC, the Canadian Experience class, will continue to be at the forefront. I think that they'll continue to benefit from these higher numbers, um, intake numbers. That, you know, the proof is in the pudding, which is, okay, so the targets are 400,000 or 450,000 or 500,000. Let's see what finalization looks like. And let's see what the mix is of that finalization. So I'm a huge fan of the Canadian Experience class. I, I will always vouch for international students and those individuals that have skin in the game, individuals that have studied here, paid high tuition, uh, individuals that have paid taxes here that are already working. We already know who they are. And they're, uh, as a conservative, they're only 50% process. It takes less resources to to finalize them. Absolutely. So, you know, it was a mistake to put them in the general sort of processing. Um, I'm glad that they're now prioritized. They should remain to prioritized. I think the other issue is that we need to start moving these files around from, you know, visa office to visa office and, and see how these things can be done. I think there has to be ongoing training of visa officers abroad. We have unjustified refusals. Every refusal, 
I mean, think about it. You have a spousal sponsorship that's refused. I don't know about other lawyers' success rate. We have a very high success rate at our PL. So that means that we are seeing unjustified refusals at first instance. We need greater uh, training of officers. We need to get that the false negative down. And that, that will require training. Uh, absolutely. You know, we were on uh, Red FM, uh, I would say a month and a half ago, and we had brought the, this exact same point up that, you know, inside RCC, sometimes there's, you know, those individuals who can process faster than others. There's people who, can, who are fast, like people like Raj, who can process maybe 40 to 50. And then there's slower people like me who can do maybe 10 to 15. But there, I agree with that point that maybe we need, it is coming down to more training, better training. I also think, and, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that is, Maybe we need officers with with cultural appropriate training. I mean, you know, judges are know. going through that. I don't know. I don't know that. I think locally engaged staff on visa offices are problematic, um, and we can get into that maybe on another show. But uh, you know, raise the fees on visitors, non-essential visitors, non-family members. Raise the fees. Raise those fees, get them better processing, have an internal review mechanism for refused visitor visa applications. Why are they, how many follow-ups do your, does your office do on visa applications? I, we're swamped. <laughs> why is an MP, a member of parliament, and his staff that the taxpayers pay for, why are they dealing with routine inquiries for status? That's wrong raise the fees, give them proper service, have an internal review mechanism. If there's a refusal, why do you have to go to the federal court? We Again, on that Red FM show, I compared going to the federal court, which Djokovic did, multimillionaire. He went to the federal court at one, And I said, you know, let's see. He'll, he'll find out what a hollow exercise sometimes the federal court is. Going to the federal court on a visitor visa refusal is like using a hammer to kill a mosquito. So there must be an internal review mechanism. This has been talked about for a long time. Have them pay. It's it's a it's a minuscule amount for a visitor visa. Increase the fees. That'll decrease some of the, let's say, non-meritorious. Not again, not family class. I, I think yeah. family class visitor visa application fees just fine. But increase the fees for everyone else, and then increase. Uh, and if you want an internal review mechanism, have a five hundred dollar or whatever fee for that. But I think again, where I don't know how much grief we're giving MPs and their staff in in, in doing routine follow ups. You know, it, it also leads to the point about transparency as well. I mean, the more transparent we can be as a, as a, as a country, especially when it comes to immigration, it would, it would help those people that are trying to come here to live that Canadian dream. And at the end of the day, people want to come to this country because it has so much to offer too. And these are individuals that want to give back to that, that same country. So I think transparency is something that, that really is that, that a, a big missing piece right now when we look all of that. Um, Immigration. Where where do we see immigration going for the future of Canada? I don't know. I, I, I think that there's going to be incredible challenges ahead if we keep having this sort of piecemeal approach to immigration. Um, you know, I, I was reading about, I guess, I can't remember exactly. It was like, what's that, what's that uh, bike race, the, the Tour de France? So I guess the British kept losing. Right. And obviously it wasn't genetic. It wasn't whatever. Anyway, the team that brought in that finally got them to success was their motto was that they just tried to do 
each thing like 1% or 2% better. Yeah. We'll get the bike frames 2% lighter. We will get get these, you know, these bandages that are slightly better than these other bandages. Yeah. We'll get quick drying socks. I don't know. I can't remember the full story. But the point is, is that there is no magic bullet to this Titanic of IRCC. But what we need is we need individuals that will, or ministers and and bureaucrats and decision makers that will seek to simply improve just 2%, just 5%. But if you improve 2% at every stage or at every level, at every interaction, you will see a sea change. So that's the challenge that the next sort of leader of this ship the the pilot or the captain of the ship has and and it, and and that challenge should be accepted and it should be brought forward but i don't see that happening uh, maybe i'm just pessimistic it's been 20 years in immigration so you know <laughs> i don't know i it's you see some sort of silver linings um but again i see there's a lot of grief in terms of my clients and a lot of grief uh in terms of their interactions with rcc and and obviously we always we want canada to succeed i want this country to succeed. I want IRCC to succeed. I want my clients and these applicants to succeed. So I hope that we we just need someone to institute a desire for incremental, incremental, nothing, no sea change, incremental improvement um, at every stage of, of IRCC. Very good point. I want to leave everyone off with asking you to share a very, I would say, a heartwarming or, or an experience that you've had with a client that, you know, there's sometimes there's those cases that really you go home at the end of the day and you're still thinking about it. And then when you see it actually go through and there's a positive result from it, it's that feeling of almost like that's like you're, they be- almost become like family to you. So I, I'd love for you to share something like that. There's so many. Um, I think the most recent is is my first reported decision and the first reported federal court decision of the year. Um, it involved uh, someone that was working in long-term care who was uh, providing end-stage um, service and, and assistance, and um, she was short of the residency obligation. And because she was short on the residency obligation, they tried to remove her from Canada. And she had good reasons why she couldn't comply with the residency obligation. So when we ran the appeal, um, they gave short shrift to her assistance in long-term care facility. There was multiple COVID outbreaks. There was, there was deaths in the facility. She's literally risking her life, and this is in the decision, risking her life for the welfare of Canadians with no expectations that her appeal would be accepted. That was given short shrift at the appeal. We lost. We took that to the federal court. Luckily, we had Justice Ahmed, this uh, a former immigration lawyer, mm-hmm. um, a human rights uh, award winner, a former refugee, um, and and he said in his decision that the moral debt that we owe um, racialized individuals, particularly women, racialized women took the brunt of the pandemic, the Absolutely. hit of the pandemic. If you look at the numbers of COVID positive cases in Ontario, the, the racialized LTC workers from Nigeria, from India, from Philippines, it was disproportionately high. Justice Emmett recognized that. We succeeded on the judicial review. It's going back for redetermination. I have high hopes for that. That case I then disclosed on another long-term care uh, worker who needed to do an appeal. I think it'll come in handy. So just, you know, my year started off 
very nicely with that decision. And I hope that there's more. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to avoid, you know, like, you know, winning these cases is great. But like, why don't we get justice at the first instance? That's right. You know, f- correcting injustice is is obviously it's a high. You, you have validation as a lawyer that I am an advocate. I am good. And that's great. But how about we get justice at the first instance? So these stories will keep coming. But, you know, just off the top of my mind, I think uh, that's how I started off my January. And uh, I hope that uh, individuals like my client and, and others, you know, others don't have to go through what she had to to get that reported decision. So um, here's hoping for, you know, your office has been fantastic. You've been very, very invested in this file. Um, you know, we we collaborate. We we're together in front of Parliament. So I'm very grateful to you and your office as well. I hope you keep doing the great work that you're doing. So I'm hoping that 2022 is a better year than 2021. Let's let's see. <laughs> of course, and and thank you so much. Final thoughts to leave with everyone. Final thoughts is that we gave IRCC some margin in terms of 2020. This is unexpected. It was unforeseen. This challenge, 2021. They still got, and we got the TR to PR pathway, and we saw some silver linings. 2022, it's time for us to sort of, you know, um, address these challenges. No more excuses. It's time for us to, uh, for IRCC to sort of step up to the plate and deliver because these individuals deserve a fair shake. They deserve their applications to be considered in a timely fashion. They deserve their applications to be considered by a fair impartial, unbiased decision maker that's trained in cultural context and and other scenarios as well. So I think at this point, um, very little margin will be given to IRCC this year. Raj, uh, I can't thank you enough to take time out of your busy, uh, I think you're busier than any MP that I know uh, (laughs) because of all the work that you do and the reputation you've built. And I just want to say thank you for all of that and much more. And I guess the mentorship you've given me as well and the inspiration you've given to me. Brother, the, the feeling is absolutely mutual. And uh, it's thank you for having me. And uh, I look forward to uh, being in your office uh, much more in the, in the coming months <laughs> Likewise, and years. Likewise. Yeah. And uh, I think we're going we're gonna to have a really, really good 2020, uh, 2022, I should say. And yeah, please, let's, to... not, let's not go back to 2020. <laughs> and looking forward to more great successful as, stories. As, as our Muslim brothers and sisters would say, astaghfirullah, let's not, let's wipe <laughs> that year back, from yeah. our collective memories. Collective memory and let's move on. Uh, this was Raj Sharma on the second episode of All That Jazz podcast. I want to thank Raj again. Um, Raj, do you want to leave any social uh, media uh, you know, your handles at all for anyone to follow you? I'd, I'd love for people to follow you. They'll find me. Okay, yeah. Just <laughs> all you got to do is just Google him. You'll find him. And many other articles on Raj because he's written a lot. And thank you for all your uh, service back to um, back to Canada. Um, thank you all again for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next one.